Jonah's such an interesting character to me. Who in the world would be told to go preach somewhere and run away because God was gracious? Just, just mind-boggling. We'll be looking at um, Jonah, the second chapter. I'm sorry, the third chapter, verses 3 and 4. We'll read 1 through 4. Please stand for the reading of God's Word this evening. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be destroyed, overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth and a greatest, from the greatest to the least of them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me as I preach this text. And pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this evening. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that it profits us nothing unless you bless. And so we ask, O Lord, open up our hearts and minds to be receptive to the scriptures. And be with me as I preach it, Lord, to preach with uh, confidence and unction. The authority of the scriptures and being pressed forward with the people as they hear them. God, we ask you to change us this evening and to encourage us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Be ashamed to die before you have won some victory for humanity. How many people know who said that? Be ashamed to die before you have won some victory for humanity. It was Horace Mann said that. And there's a college in Ohio. We've been through the campus. It's called Antioch College. He at one time was the president of that college. That is a motto of Antioch College. Be ashamed to die before you have won some victory for mankind. Of all the victories that have been won in the history of the world, in the history of our nation, which do you think would be the greatest one to have benefited the most people? Now, some might think of December 17, 1917, two brothers on a beach in North Carolina caused a plane to fly into the air. You know it was, the Wright brothers. On September the 28th, 1928, a man named uh, Alexander Fleming, by accident, discovered the world's first antibiotic. And you know from that came penicillin, which I cannot take. It will kill me if I take penicillin. I'm very allergic to penicillin. Or again, July 20th, 1969, these words were heard by astronaut Neil Armstrong. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for Mankind, when uh, the first human stepped on the surface of the moon so many years ago now. And as we think about these things and look at these things, we'll certainly recognize they are great accomplishments. You look at flight today. All started for those two brothers at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, years ago. And now you've got supersonic jets, and it's just amazing what that has led to. Or you think about the antibiotics that started with Alexander Fleming. So many drugs now that we can take to help us to get over illnesses. And think about now the plans to fly to Mars. I don't want to go. But that's the plan. 
to fly to Mars. It's a long way. Well, as great as these things are, I can tell you this, this is not the greatest accomplishment. That's not the good. None of these are the greatest accomplishment of what has happened in the history of our world. And you know where I'm going with this. The greatest victory was that of the Lord Jesus Christ. That changed history dramatically, dramatically. And uh, it is that the other things that I have mentioned in the opening part of this sermon are rather insignificant compared with the victory that Christ had over sin and over death. That sacrifice, that death and resurrection of Jesus made it possible for us to go from being God's enemies to being his children. From facing a life of eternal damnation to facing a life of eternal bliss. That act on the part of Jesus secured our place in glory. That is that great knowledge that has changed so many things. Well, uh, in the text this evening, the man Jonah is taking a message to the Ninevites. It is a message of hope. It is a message that comes from the same God who sent Christ into the world many years after this. But what we see from this is because God is determined to save sinners through the proclamation of his word, that word is always effective to bring the lost to repentance as God sees fit. We sometimes don't evangelize. We sometimes don't talk about the gospel because we feel like we can't argue people into the kingdom. Well, we can't argue people into the kingdom. But you can be faithful. And you can tell people of the hope that is within you. Uh, anyone, I think, can do that. Well, two things this evening. Um, the divine grace of God is seen in the proclamation of his word. And the divine grace of God is seen in the precision of his word. And the first thing, then, the divine grace of God is seen in the proclamation of his word. People do not. They cannot, nor will they ever be able to have a relationship with God or know him apart from his word, apart from the gospel. Whether men or women or children, it is impossible for them to have a relationship with God apart from the word of God, apart from the utterance of the gospel. So we see here the necessity of preaching by nature. If you heard someone, give me a glass of water. Here it is. Never mind. By nature, we know that we have an innate knowledge of God. We talked about that this morning. In Romans 1, 18 through 23, he talks about the fact how God has displayed his existence in the things that were created, his invisible powers, clearly seen through the things that were made. And so we know that the creation itself demonstrates and shows us that there is none of this evolution. It's just uh, something that's not true at all. God made everything. He created it. By the word of his power in the space of six days, in all very good. But though we have this innate knowledge of God, and though God displays his existence in creation, uh, nonetheless, our knowledge of God is corrupted. Uh, it has been spoiled. John Calvin said in talking about the image of God, it's terribly marred. And that's why we have cults. That's why we have emergences of religious beliefs. That's why we have non-believers. Uh, because we are by nature corrupted, and our knowledge is corrupted, and our hearts are corrupted as well. And left unknown, we will never know God apart from his word. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 2:13. and you who were dead. So it is beyond our ability uh, to come to a knowledge of God 
It is beyond our ability to understand God in and of ourselves and to come to know him through the creation. We can know that he exists. We can know nothing of the gospel through creation. Nothing. I meant to bring my confession in here and I left it on my desk. And so it says in the confession, the first chapter, Article 1, Though God has displayed his existence through the things that were made very clearly so that men without excuse let that, yet that knowledge of God uh, to lead to salvation uh, came through the word. And so the better preserving of the, uh, the gospel had been put into the scriptures. That's a terrible quote from it, but that's basically what it says. And so it, it, we uh, unto ourselves and we'll never come to know our God, our Lord, through the creation, but only through the scriptures. Only through the Word of God read and believed. So we need to be introduced to the truth. Well, the second thing, the command of Jonah to go and preach the message of God, uh, to preach the message God tells him. As you know, the first time Jonah went, he didn't preach anything. He did all he could to see to it that the gospel never got to Nineveh. He ran away. And God always gets his man, so he ended up back uh, on the shore somewhere and end up going back to Nineveh a second time. So he prays exactly uh, what, I mean, he, he is going to preach exactly what God tells him to preach. And we know what Jonah might have done. Now, Jonah might have said, I preach to you the God of all creation. I preach to you his infinite holiness. I preach to you his infinite goodness. I preach to you his terrifying wrath. I preach to you that he is not going to forgive you, but going to consume you, and he will never forgive your sins. Therefore, no need for you to turn or change. It's amazing the hatred this man had in his heart. You think about it. He knew God to be a God of grace. And he knew that if he went to preach to Nineveh, there would be a strong possibility that those people would come to faith. He knew that. And yet he hated them so much that he would not go, being forced to go, being forced to give the message God wants him to give. And you remember at the end of Jonah, after they do repent, he pouts. And he's upset. He hopes that they turn away from the Lord so that God might destroy them. That is hatred. And it's wrong. And we're wrong if we ever want to shield the gospel from somebody else. And we think that this group should not have the gospel because they're just so terribly wicked. Well, what are we? What were we? But just like that, we are, we are in debtors to grace as well. So God tells John to go and preach and to do exactly what I tell you to do. So uh, he goes and he preaches the message that is from on high. He sends Jonah to give the word to them, though they do not deserve it. We don't either. The people of Nineveh were pagans. They were religious. But they did not worship the God of creation. And God was not sympathetic to them because they were religious and just wrong. He will not accept in the heart of anyone anything other than Christianity. And a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they weren't worshiping him by just a different name. They were lost. They were undeserving of Jonah's preachings. And the Lord sent him anyway. This is God. This book speaks so loudly of two things. God's providence and God's grace. As he sends Jonah to these people who by no means deserve to hear the word. And yet he sends them because... Of his love for them. And we know that there is the necessity of hearing the word. Romans 10, Paul says, How can they call on him who they have not heard, and how will they, not, how will they hear without a preacher? 
And someone may ask this then, well, what about infants that die in infancy? If you have to hear the word of God and respond to the word of God, what happens to those who can't hear it? What happens to those who can't respond to it because they're so terribly challenged? What do we do with that? Do we say, well, this, the, uh, this, they're not the age of accountability? There's nothing in the Bible about that. Nowhere in the Bible do you read anything about the age of accountability. It's not there. As a matter of fact, we have to understand that as winsome and as adorable as little children are, their sins offend God just like adults. He's holy. He doesn't wink his eye at the sins of anybody. And he hates it in the life of a child, in the life of an adult, in the life of an old person as well. So there is none of this business of the age of accountability that is simply not there. And so they respond, well, are you saying then that they all go to hell? No. I'm not saying that at all. What the confession does, and it does this to indicate that in order for a child to go to heaven, they must be a recipient of God's grace. They must be washed by the blood of Christ. They're not innocent. In sin did my mother conceive me, David said. So they're not innocent. They are still descendants of Adam. And they are still before him rebellious. Uh, Dr. DeWitt was preaching this one time, and he said, as beautiful and as lovely as the ones are, they have a heart by nature that is in rebellion against God and that hates God. People do not come to hate God later. Yet they loved the Lord until they were 12 years old, and all of a sudden they started hating Him. Once grace takes place, once the gospel takes hold, once God changes the heart of an individual, it's changed forever. So they don't go from being saved one day and lost the next day to being a lover of God one day and a hater of God the next day. That is not how it happens at all. What the confession does, it uses this language, elect infants dying in infancy. It's not saying they're not all elect. It's not saying that at all. What it says is, again, that if a child is going to go to heaven, it has to have the blood of Christ applied to it. Because there's no innocence there. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short. Everybody. Not a few. Not a couple. But everybody has fallen short of the grace of God. Well, there are two texts in the Bible that give us some insight into this, I think. And one is 2 Samuel 12, 22 through 23. You know what happened there, right? David's child died. And David is told the child has died, and he gets up and cleans himself, and he goes and he eats and he worships God. And you know what he says there. He can't come to me, but I can come to him. And there's a thought there, there's a recognition there of going to heaven to be with the child. In the New Testament, Luke 144, uh, you remember what happened when Elizabeth is visiting with, uh, with Mary, and Elizabeth hears the voice of Mary. And what does the baby John do? He jumps, leaps for joy. So there, John the Baptist was converted in the womb. So can God change a child's heart in the womb? Yes, he absolutely can. Does he do that? Yes, he absolutely does. How often? I don't know. I just know that according to this text, he does. And according to this text in the Old Testament, especially for believers, there's a hope and confidence because of God's covenant promise that we will see our children in heaven if they die at birth. And my mother had a child that died at birth. My brother, Mark, never got to see him. I don't know what happened. She carried him to term, and then when he was born, he was stillborn. Back in 1960 or 61, something like that, I think it was. And 
That's a very sad thing, but, uh, you know, I'd like to see him, and I hope that I do see him. I'm pretty, pretty confident that I will one day because of our great God, because of his great kindness. So uh, our God uh, is a God who uh, uh, the word is uh, to be preached, and his divine grace is seen in the proclamation of the word. His divine grace is also seen in the precision of the word, how it cuts He tells Jonah again to go preach exactly what I tell you to preach, nothing more and nothing less. So he preaches the first half of the message. Jonah gives that to them. In 40 days, none of us shall be destroyed. And he probably loved telling them that. In 40 days, none of us shall be destroyed. And the basic idea of being overthrown is to turn, to turn over a plate, and so it is going to be completely leveled. If God destroys Nineveh, it is going to be flat is going to be completely level, and the wrath of God is coming against them because of their sin. That's what this first part of the message is. In 40 days, none of us shall be destroyed. And we can't forget that God looks at nations with great displeasure today who are involved in lawlessness. And though he's holding back his wrath, he will unveil it one day. And we can rest confidently in that reality and that truth. The wrath of God is coming against them because of their sin. It's coming against our world today because of its sin also. And we want to be on the side where God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. The credibility of the message is underscored by the fact that the Assyrians stood, uh, had enemies just to the north of them, and they were in considerable danger. So when he tells them that, there is a reality that the possibility of them being destroyed just to the north of them. He preached the second part of the message. The Lord gives you 30 days to th- 40 days to think about it. So you have a chance. You have time. 40 days, if you turn away... If you repent, he will not destroy this place, but you will be saved. Why did God tarry? Why didn't God deal with him as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah? I have no idea. It was God's choice. He chose to do it in that fashion. But the lay tells us that the message contained hope. He gave them time. There's hope there. There's the God of grace again, giving them time to repent. The message goes out. The preacher goes and tells them that what's coming. He tells them what they can do to avoid that judgment. And he gives them 40 days to think of it. And so there they are. The word overturn means to, uh, to turn over. It can also mean to turn around or to transform. And this is what Assyria needs to do. This is what Nineveh needs to do. So they needed to hear from Jonah the message of condemnation. They needed to hear from Jonah the message of hope. That same message is before us today. It's also before the entire world. You know, there may be times in our lives when it looks like the power of the gospel is uh, being rather ineffective. Look at the churches, the big churches today, the big churches today, the big mainline churches today, the big popular churches today. Most of them don't have the gospel in them. They just don't. Messages to make you feel good, messages to make you laugh, but nothing about the condition of our hearts and the need to turn to God in repentance. And you look at what's going on in the world, the hatred for the church that is so public. People hate God. They don't just dislike him, they hate him. And you see that in our cities, 
You see that in our leadership. And you see it again and again. You look at the Middle East and what's happening over there. They, they took Christians out. These men made them kneel down on, on their knees and they killed them because they would not renege the gospel. If we ever have to face that, I pray God would give me this courage to die like that, to die bravely, to die well for the cause of Christ. These men did. No, none were crying as far as I could tell, but they got on their knees and they were beheaded by people that hated Christ. People that hated God. So, it seems at times the impact of the gospel is not doing what it did in the place of Nineveh. But the same God who ruled when Jonah was preaching rules today. And he could bring revival tomorrow as he did in the city of Nineveh. Just as he did then, he could do that here in our own city. He could do it in our own state. He could do it in our own our own country. I pray that he does. God is a God of grace. And God is not finished expressing his grace. If I read a quote by J.K. G.K. Chesterton. There's a sense of the absence of God. When there is a sense of an absence for, of God, pray for revival. When there is a sense of the absence of God, pray for Revival. Revival comes when the church begins to take God's calling seriously. Be awakened to the needs of men and women and children who do not know God. Ask God to use you this year to lead someone to him. He has guaranteed it to us. Get on board. Do that this year. Ask God to use you to bring someone to faith. Pray for it. Beg him for it. Ask God to use this church to gather in the elect of Christ. Ask him. Pray hard for it. And let's see. We pray for revival, basically, is what we're doing. And that uh, we are encouraged this evening as we come to the table, uh, encouraged by the fact that this demonstrates to us, it assures us of the reality of our redemption. Christ gave us this meal. And Christ gave it to his disciples, giving them the assurance that their sins were going to be paid for, that he was going to die, but he's also going to be resurrected from the dead. There's nothing more glorious than that, nothing greater than that victory that Christ had over sin, because that victory is ours as well. Let's pray. Our God in the heavenly Father, we thank you for this little book. We thank you for Jonah. We thank you that it contains all of his uh, uh, poor decisions, uh, his foolishness. And yet, Lord, your sovereignty in getting him where you wanted him to be. And he delivered the message that you wanted him to deliver. Father, we pray that you would send revival to our church. We pray that you would use us, O oh God, to gather in the elect of Christ. Use us, O oh God, to bring uh, the... Uh, a message to the lost, and use it, O oh God, effectively and efficaciously. And we would pray that you would bless us, Lord, in our homes, that we would be faithful to witnessing for Christ there, and pray that you would bless our city with revival as well. Thank you, our God, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the next hymn?